if you want to be a guest, please email me. I have received so many emails of people that are excited and passionate about being a guest on this show. The process is time consuming. I go through about an hour long pre-interview and I determine where you'd fit best in the season. So if you've gone through the pre-interview process or we've messaged back and forth via email and haven't gone through the pre-interview process, I'm not ignoring you, I, I promise. There's just a lot on my plate and I am one person. That being said, I look forward to talking with every one of you that is interested in being on this podcast. Y'all are amazing. And I honestly could not do this podcast without the support that I receive from each one of you. So thank you so much. We have lawmakers wanting to write laws, telling young girls that we can't even talk about having a period until they're in high school. When we have young girls that are menstruating in middle and elementary school, for goodness sakes. And when we set up this narrative that young girls are supposed to be pure until they get married, and we don't teach them about their own bodies, it sets them up to be abused. Because purity culture tells girls that they are to keep their voices low and their heads lower. They are to be seen and not heard and they are not ever to question a man in any type of authority above them. So young girls often, when they are raised in this, they have so much respect for these men that they don't ever question when these men begin to groom them or inappropriately do things to them. And there are often times that women or children are abused, young girls are abused, without even knowing that they've been abused. Welcome to the Focus on Your Own Family podcast. Fundamentalist evangelicalism impacted a generation. We survived physical, psychological, mental, and spiritual abuse. We survived the Focus on the Family movement, and we want to talk about it. Trigger warning, guests will be sharing stories of domestic violence, child abuse, and animal abuse. Please listen with caution. Thank you. Please welcome Heather. This is her story. Hey, Heather. Hello, Stephanie. How are you? Hey, I'm doing fine. We're going to do this. This is our fourth or fifth attempt to try and record. It's yes. going to happen. I would love for you to introduce yourself. Please make sure that you let people know your pronouns so they know how to address you. Okay. Hello, everybody. My name is Heather, and I am a former evangelist. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm all about deconstructing harmful Christianity. Fantastic. I met you on TikTok. We started creating roughly around the same time. I remember we just commented on each other's videos and we became mutuals. You've been so delightful to know. And your joyful, positive attitude is contagious. And I love that. That's why people speak so highly of you. You are a very safe place and a very safe person for the queer and trans community. I noticed that is a large portion of those that follow you. And you work very hard to affirm and love. I just want to start the podcast out by saying thank you for being a safe place for people that are marginalized and don't have a family. And you have really become that that mom, that aunt, that sister that they've needed. 
Well, I appreciate you saying that so stinking much. I wasn't always in this space that I am now having an open and loving and affirming heart. Now my motto is, is if it isn't love, it isn't God. And love leads me wherever I go. I think that it's important to mention, too, that when you talk about God, just so our listeners know, because sometimes that can be really triggering. You are referencing your own spiritual journey and not the God of evangelical, the fundamentalist evangelicalism, and not even the God of necessarily the Bible, the way that it's written, the way that it's portrayed. This is what you see as your true north, as your higher power. Would that be accurate or do you feel like that represents it? Absolutely. Uh, I say it this way now since I've deconstructed that everybody's spiritual journey is their own. Some people choose to be spiritual and believe in a higher power. Other people choose not to. Whether you believe or you don't believe, I honor your choices in your chosen belief because it's not my job to push my beliefs onto you. It's just my job to believe what it is that I believe and hold true to what it is that I believe. But it's not my job to force that on anybody. It's just my job to love everybody without condition. Yeah, it's so true. You and I share a lot of similarities. Our background is different, right? Because we were raised in two completely different parts of of the country. But we both share growing up Dobson, being raised heavily inside a purity culture, A lot of what you have to talk about in reference to purity culture, and I think that it's a fair statement to say that because Dobson did so much work inside of that purity culture movement, what he was trying to do was end the sexual revolution, blame the pornography industry on every single crime that's happening, and take away control and power from women and girls and their bodies. He developed the True Love Waits movement which was the foundation of purity culture. I don't have a problem with saying that Dobson was and is the architect of purity culture. I wanted to let people know a little bit of the backstory before we really dive into what purity culture was like for you. That way, anybody that was unfamiliar with that term, now they know it. I would love for you to talk about early life with purity culture since That's initially what you were like, I want to come on and talk about purity culture. And then I want to come on and talk about discipline. So I think that you can marry the two if you paint a picture of what it was like growing up with dare to discipline and the strong-willed child. Absolutely. I talk about purity culture often on my socials as well, because purity culture is so damning and damaging to developing young girls. There are so many things that young girls are not taught. We have people that advocate for not teaching children about their own bodies. We have lawmakers wanting to write laws, telling young girls that we can't even talk about having a period until they're in high school. When we have young girls that are menstruating in middle and elementary school, for goodness sakes. And when we set up this narrative that young girls are supposed to be pure until they get married, and we don't teach them about their own bodies, it sets them up to be abused because purity culture tells girls that they are to keep their voices low and their heads lower. They are to be seen and not heard, and they are not ever to question a man in any type of authority above them. So young girls often, when they are raised in this, 
they have so much respect for these men that they don't ever question when these men begin to groom them or inappropriately do things to them. And there are often times that women or children are abused, young girls are abused, without even knowing that they've been abused. And that's my story. I want to interject there really quick. What's fascinating is what you said just mere seconds ago. Young girls are taught that they respect these men so much. I'm going to catch that because that is so fascinating that you said that because I used to feel that way too. Respect for men, for boys, was taught and looked differently. You say the word respect and what you mean is fear. Girls were taught fear and boys were taught that respect meant to dominate, meant to control, meant to subdue. And women and girls were taught that respect was fear, period. I mean, we were told that the word was respect. But if you ask any girl or any person that grew up in the fundamentalist evangelical movement that was born female, we will all say the same thing that it meant fear. We will describe the word fear and call it respect. Absolutely. Because the fundamental basis of Christian doctrine and theology is fear. Mm -hmm. And it's fear. They use fear even against the men because the men are fearful that they don't keep their family structure intact if they are not those domineering people. But that's what they're taught. But we are taught to fear or respect these men so stinking much that we respect them more than we end up respecting ourselves because we're taught to do that as well. Therefore, we don't protect ourselves. We leave ourselves completely vulnerable. And then these men get to do and say whatever they want. It's so true. It's a very medical dichotomy. Yeah. Would you take us into what the purity culture journey was for Heather? I grew up in a fundamental Christian home. My father was a pastor. My mother's pastor as well. Very strict Christian home. I was taught to be pure until I was married. Before I even knew what purity meant. In fact, I was taught to respect these men and have severe reverence and honor for men above me. And I did this with my father, every man that was in my life. And this failed me every single time because I did have that respect. But at eight years old, I had a cousin that came to live with us for a little while and he sexually abused me repetitively. And it was so horror. Every time I think about it, it's just so awful what happened to me because I was an eight-year-old old girl and this man, he was my cousin. He was much, much older than me. And we were kids that didn't have a lot. He had just recently purchased a Nintendo. And Nintendo was really big back then. I was eight years old. And the only way I could play that Nintendo was if I gave up my body for my cousin. Because that was my penance to pay. Now, the thing is, at eight, I didn't know what was happening to me. I just knew if I did that, that I would be able to play the damn video game. And it, it kills me every time because it's just so awful to be abused and not even know that you're being abused at the time. And again, I was raised in purity culture. I was taught to keep myself pure until I was married. 
but I did not know what purity meant because I had parents that didn't teach me about my body. I didn't know about my body. I didn't know how sex worked. Later on down the road, when I was about 10 years old, that was when my mom sat me down to have the talks with me. And that was when I realized that I had been violated 10 years before that when I was eight. And because of all that guilt and shame, because I tell you, you're like a tuner piece of bubble gum. So when my mom told me that, I knew that I was no good anymore. I had nothing to offer anybody of any value because my virginity had already been stolen from me. And I didn't even tell my parents about what had happened to me because I was so ashamed. Not only did that happen to me at eight and I didn't know what was happening, but then at 10, when I learned what actually had happened, there I was, a little kid dealing with all of that trauma, all those emotions, and I internalized it all because I was so ashamed that I couldn't tell anybody in my family. And it wasn't until about five years later that I was actually able to tell my mother what had happened to me. She believed me. It wasn't a problem. But again, I was in purity culture and I was dating somebody at that time that I was going to marry this man. Like I knew I was going to marry him. And I remember my brother telling me that I had to tell him that I had been raped as a little girl because he might not want to marry me once he learned that I wasn't a virgin anymore. And that's what it's like being raised in purity culture. Because once you either have your virginity stolen from you or you willingly give it, you are viewed as not valuable anymore because they want their women to be pure. But the problem is that the men aren't required to be the same. Yeah. It's not the same level of expectation for them that it is for the women. And so much of what happens to us becomes our fault. People in the church will say things like, well, what happened to me when I was eight was my fault because they always blame the victim. If a woman gets sexually assaulted, it's her fault because she was enticing the man. I mean, purity culture is just so damaging in so many ways. Heck, there was even a guy from our church when I was a kid that attempted to groom me. Now, my dad noticed what was happening, but the man was able to actually take me to the park all by myself, go play tennis with me. And it wasn't until my dad learned that he had come to the house and picked me up and took me to go play tennis that my dad was like, no, this isn't happening. But at the same time, that man went to our church. That was exactly how he was able to get close enough to my family to be able to take me to go play tennis to begin with. This happens all the time. The people that are hurting kids, 94% of kids that are hurt know their abuser. There are not 94% of kids hanging around LGBTQIA plus people or drag queen. They're in the church. Yeah, but purity culture set kids up to not be prepared to not protect themselves, to not even know what's happening to them when it is happening. I'll take it a step further that purity culture teaches girls to expect harassment and advances from boys because they have curves. We're expected, we're taught from such a young age, oh, 
boys are aggressive. Boys will be boys. And, and they don't so, have control. <laughs> right. So when this happened to you, when you were victimized because you were brought up with this idea that respect was really fear, you weren't allowed to say, hey, no, back off. You had no agency over your body. You just knew that your job was to do whatever a man that was older than you was telling you to do so that you could go from point A to point B without confrontation because we weren't allowed to be confrontational. That is called a bitter woman. And we did not want to be a bitter woman. Exactly. And it's the same thing like the guy from my church. He showed up at my house and said, hey, you want to go play tennis? Now, I didn't know any better. I was a kid. He's somebody that I knew. Why would I not want to go do something fun with somebody that I know? Mm-hmm. But I would have been more aware of things that would have never happened to me. Mm-hmm. But again, and, and you're right, we are taught in purity culture that we are the problem for men, that men cannot control themselves around women. When you look at it, it's so messed up the stuff that we were taught. And it was so unhealthy, the things that we were taught. There were also things that we weren't taught as well. My God, I was married, had four children, and I had been married for about eight years before I even knew what an orgasm was. I mean, I think about that and like, that's embarrassing to say that out loud, but it's the truth. I didn't even know my body could do that. Why? Because nobody taught me. And you know what? Bless my husband's heart. He didn't know either. Why? Because we didn't know. We were raised in purity culture. We didn't know about our bodies. We weren't taught about this stuff. We were just taught about song or soul and climbing trees. And I think it was stupid. It's just, it's so messed up. And so many women, they suffer because of this. They really do. Because not only are you taught this patriarchal standard, but it carries on into your adult life too. Because before you know it, you're going to end up teaching that same stuff to your kids if you're in that environment. And then what are you doing? You're setting your kids up for failure. Now, me, since I was an abuse survivor, I was like, hey, we're not doing that at my house. I'm telling my kids, we're not having that. But the thing is that people in churches that haven't experienced that, they won't teach their kids that stuff. They won't prepare their young girls so they can protect themselves against these boys that would want to hurt them or take advantage of them. And that's the scariest part of this all, is that you're not even protecting your own children. You're just putting them in danger. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you to those that have reached out with your support, whether you have left a review. If you haven't left a review, this would be a really, really good time to leave a review. Read every single one of them. So thank you. And for those that are subscribers to my Patreon, thank you. It means so much. One of the new features that I am adding for my paid Patreon subscribers is the chat feature. And this is just a way that we can all continue this conversation that we're having in the podcast. And if you are not a paid subscriber, unfortunately, the chat feature won't be available to you, but you can be a free subscriber and you'll just get the weekly newsletters. Y'all are amazing. And I honestly could not do this podcast without the support that I receive from each one of you. So thank you so much.
Yeah, it's terrifying. What is important to acknowledge is because we don't have agency, we are groomed, taught, and indoctrinated those born female at birth, that we have one role and that Mm -hmm. our job is to stay pure. The day we are born, we are entered into a race to the altar. That's our job. We are in training. And the girl that has the fastest shoes gets to the altar first. And fastest shoes, meaning countenance, purity, beauty, poise, all the things that we are raised. It's a decade and a half of finishing school. That's what this feels like. It's just like prepping for marriage. And for me, I was married at 20 and it felt like an exchange of goods. I just graduated high school. I had just met my husband. I met him two weeks out of high school. I was 18. He was 18. And when my parents found out that I had met him, it was almost like a confirmation to them that they could just abandon me because they could transfer their real estate over to somebody else. And they were free of me. They didn't have to keep me in this place. In fact, when I turned 18, my birthday is at the beginning of March. So when I turned 18, every time that I would go out somewhere, I would come home and my dad would be like, so have you met your future husband yet? Did you meet him tonight? And I always thought that was silly. Oh, my dad's just funny. I look back on it now and it's not so funny anymore because... There was some level of truth. I was panicked. I have a journal entry from the from when I'm 17, freaking out that I don't know who my future husband is yet because I knew the clock started ticking when I turned 16. Even though people weren't, not a lot of people were getting married at 17, 18, or anything like that. We're just the Pacific Northwest was was just a little bit more progressive. I had youth leaders that got married at 18, like fresh out of high school. And that felt normal. 18 was an adult. All of us girls looked at 18-year-old women and they were getting married. So I say all that because I know your story, not in detail, but I know a little bit about it. And you were married much younger than I was, but we both got married, I'm going to say it, as children. I was married at just newly 20. I was barely 20 when I got married. I was definitely what you would call a child bride. I won't even lie about it. I told my story earlier, but my husband and I, we started dating when I was 15 years old. And after I turned 16, we actually started engaging in premarital sex. And he was somebody that I had known since I was a little girl because he actually grew up with us. He was one of my brother's best friends. He's an incredible man. But we got married when I was 16 years old because my dad sat him down and told him that he couldn't have the cow or have the milk without buying the whole cow. We did. Now, my parents had gotten married young. My mom was 17 when she married my dad. And his grandparents had gotten married pretty young, too. So for us, it wasn't unusual. It was really odd. People around us thought it was odd that we were getting married so young. But at the same time, nobody in our church for family groups, nobody objected to it. Why? Because we were two young kids that were engaging in premarital sex. And it was far better for us to be married and doing that than unmarried and doing that. I was a freaking child. I was a child. And the result of this is the fact that I was a child when I got married. So six months later, when I got pregnant for the first time, I lost that baby because I was a child. 
I mean, a child can't carry a child. Your body is not ready for that. And we ended up miscarrying a couple of babies before we were actually able to have our daughter a few years later, which was good because we weren't ready at that age. But again, purity culture tells women they have to get married and bear children. That is our job. Get married, bear children, keep the home. So that was my goal at 16 years old. I had found my man because, like you said, I'm just like you. I had prayed and prayed for this man. Wrote journal entry upon journal entry. God sent me the perfect man for me. Good Christian man. And God sent him. And my husband, he would be in my house quite often while we were growing up. And I remember my mom teasing him and saying, one of these days, you're going to grow up and marry my daughter. But you know what? We have a success story, though, because we are still together. So that's a miracle in and of itself. Because that doesn't typically happen with people. They get married as young as we do. But yeah, I'm not going to say it was easy. No, I mean... Sean and I are still together. We just celebrated 19 years. I think, gosh, in a few days, it'll be 21 years since we met. And we started dating instantly. We met. And then one week later, we went out on our first date. And because the lack of a support system around us, we have never spent more than three days, maybe apart from each other in 21 years. I was taught that unless your husband is in ministry, you don't spend time away from each other. He doesn't go travel with Mm -hmm. his friends. Absolutely not. Work? Yeah, because he's providing for the family. But you do not go on separate trips. I was just thinking about this because I think it paints a picture of ownership. I had my rings off. the other. So the other night we went out and we went out to happy hour. And I had taken a shower and gotten ready before. And I never, ever leave home without my wedding ring on and anniversary band and that sort of thing. And I looked down when we were at dinner and I was horrified because I had forgotten to put it on. And that was a big deal inside the fundamentalist Christian movement. Like if you were a married woman and you did not have your ring, you should not blame anybody else but yourself if something happened to you. This was a symbol that you were kept by somebody. And Uh you were somebody's dependent. And if you didn't have it, that meant that you were saying to the world, well, I don't care about my husband and I'm out here to have fun. I'm out here to sin. And that's exactly what it was. And your forgetfulness was a sin against your husband. Like I even remember somebody saying, you need to apologize. If you are a married woman and you forgot to put your wedding ring on, You have to go apologize to your husband because obviously your vows do not mean as much to you as it does to him. Absolutely. And they they always put the weight of responsibility onto the woman. It's never the man's responsibility. It's always the woman's responsibility. If your husband cheats, oh, it's your fault as a woman. He didn't do nothing wrong. You must not have been helping him out. And being raised in this whole patriarchal thing, you say they freak out about not wearing your ring out in public. And that is so true. And the whole trip thing. I remember my mother-in-law wanting to go on a women's trip, just a women's trip with the church. But because that trip happened to fall on her anniversary, she was not allowed to go. Married for years, but because he said no, she can't go. And it was always like that. She could not go off and do things without him. Go do things with her friends. 
I was very more wild than that, I guess you would call it, because I was always like, yeah, the heck, my husband's going to tell me that. But I was raised in a home where I witnessed my mother being abused on a regular basis. She was emotionally abused and she was mentally abused. And my father was just a very narcissistic human being. So her needs were never met the way that they should have been by my father. I don't doubt that my father loved her in his own way. He just didn't love her the way that he should have loved her, period. Like, he just, he's not self-aware. So I watched my mom suffer at the hands of my father the whole time I was growing up. So after witnessing that my whole life, when I got married, I was like, there is no way I'm going to let my husband treat me like that. Because my mom would make dinner and my dad would sit down and take a bite. And if my dad didn't like it, he'd push the plate away. And then my mom would get up and go cook him something else. But that's what this patriarchal standard would do. It'll make you feel like you have to submit to your husband in everything. She felt sorry that she had made something that he didn't like the first time. No, honey, you should feel sorry that he behaved like an animal. Mm -hmm. But that's just me. For me, I saw all of this stuff growing up. And I knew that when I got married, it wasn't going to be like that. My husband and I had a lot to work through. We were teenagers. We were kids. Exactly. Like, I, I look at my daughter. She's not a teenager, but gosh, I look at her spirit, her beautiful, precious, wild, carefree, strong-willed spirit. And I am so proud of her for being able to verbally express exactly how she feels. Is it convenient for me? When we are going toe to toe, absolutely not. However, I know what it's like to grow up in an unsafe environment and to not have any idea what the spectrum of human feelings and emotions even is, because the only emotion we were allowed to have was what? <laughs> the joy of the Lord. Seeing her and I mean, also my boys. Being able to express themselves and have a, an opinion that differs from mine. And I know that I am secure in who I am when my kids disagree with me because they are allowed to, because they're human people and they exactly. have their own likes and dislikes and preferences. I want to just go back briefly. You had mentioned that you, first off, I'm, I'm so sorry that you experienced miscarriages. Were you allowed to use birth control? Was that something that no, was Absolutely all? not. That was considered a big fat sin. You don't give your daughter birth control unless you want her to go out of sex, because that's what's going to happen if you put your daughters on birth control. I was actually a teenager that had incredibly horrible menstrual cycles, like awful. And this was before they had all the medicine available that they do now and stuff. Birth control would have really benefited me quite a bit when I was younger, but I was never allowed to take it. I literally suffered every single month when I would have my cycle just because I wasn't allowed. Tampons, Satan sticks. Huh? Yeah. That was another thing I was not allowed to hear of. I went to a friend cops one time and I needed something. That was all they had. That was all they used. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I don't use these. I don't know what to do with these. Like I had no idea what to do with a freaking tampon. Because again, that would take my virginity from me if I used a tampon. So I wasn't allowed to touch that. Yeah, absolutely. I was just like, the things we were taught about our bodies that were so awful. It's just crazy. What we have to wear, a dress code everywhere you go, because Lord forbid you share too much of your core. <laughs> it's wild. What about when you were married? Was birth control permissible 
the churches that we were always in were a little bit more evangelical. So we were allowed to take birth control. I was completely allowed to do that. We didn't have an issue with that whatsoever as far as our church went. And I'm thankful for that. I really am. But at the same time, I didn't use it. I did not use birth control until after I had my daughter. And that was only for just a little while after I had her, just so I wouldn't get pregnant again right away after I had her. Because it was never viewed as a favorable type of medication. Even though we were allowed to take it, they didn't want you taking it, if that makes sense. Yep. But I, because they wanted us to pump out all the babies. I remember on my rehearsal night, we were getting ready, like we were decorating the whole space. And so this was just prior, this was during the day. And my mom, I I was picking up my purse and she goes, where do you think you're going? And I looked at her and I said, I have to go to the store and pick up condoms. And she looked at me and she goes, how dare you speak to me like that? And I was like, mom, I'm getting married tomorrow. And she was like, I need you to understand something. I'm going to be very clear. You and I are not equals. You don't talk to me like that. You don't share those things with with me like that. And I looked at her and I said, give me 24 hours. That time I had already been living separately, like living by myself for two years because they, like I said previously, they abandoned me when I was 18. So I had been 18 for two and a half, three months. And they're like, hey, deuces, we're out. We're going to move a couple states away. God has called us to build houses for missionaries when they want to go on vacation or they're tired or sabbatical. Like it was some wonky, weird idea, but it was in this middle of the Sierra Nevada foothills in California. Like nothing about this was going to work out. But they had this idea and believed they heard the voice of God. And so they moved. It was an epic failure. So two years in, here I am. I'm getting married and I'm like, I'm just going to the store. This is what I'm doing. This isn't a big deal. But the thing is like condoms, pads, tampons, like anything like that. We were not. Those were swears. Like those were curse words. A pad was a curse word. A period was a curse word. Menstrual cycle, curse word. Tampon big curse word. Condoms, don't even think about it. All of those mm-hmm. things were wrong. Like I remember I went to public school and I brought home a kit when I was like in fifth grade and it had a stick of deodorant. It had a pad. It had a tampon. It had like things, right? Because they were, it was like mm-hmm. the human growth and development series. And I brought it home and it had a pamphlet and I was terrified that my mom would find it because I thought that all the things that were in that bag, I thought they were pornography. That's how little I knew. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in so much trouble. And I hid it in my drawer, hoping that my mom wouldn't know what it was and wouldn't know where it was. But I remember I would open it every single day and I felt really special that I knew a secret, that I knew that I was starting to grow up and become a woman, even though nobody else told me that. It it was just a really, I don't know. I I was so excited. 
I was so yeah. excited that I was going to grow up and get married. But that's not all there was, though. That was our biggest goal in life. Little girls. That was our number one goal, to get married. You're nine years old and you're thinking about, oh, I'm going to get married. I got to get married. You're nine. Why are you thinking about a spouse? You, you haven't, what the heck? But that was our mindset. That was the number one goal for us. It wasn't get done with high school and go to college and make a no. career. No, it was marriage. And career wasn't even thought of. Heck, I, I've told you this before. I'm a 42-year-old woman who has a piece of paper that has a degree on it that isn't worth anything because it was from an accredited Bible school, okay? But I'm 42. I have no decent education beyond that. I had no life skills. Why? Because I was a stay-at-home mom. I stayed at home with my kids. I followed all the rules. Well, now my kids are almost grown and all out of the house. And I'm like, what am I doing with my life? What can I do with my life? Which is why I started using my voice for this stuff. Yeah. It just, it messes you up. And this is why this culture is so damaging, though. Because if I was in an abusive situation, I would be in a damning situation, a life-threatening situation, because I would have no means to get myself out of this situation. Yeah, I have no job. I have no career. I have nothing saved up. My husband provides everything. But that's the patriarchal standard, because if the husband provides everything, then the wife is dependent fully upon that man. And then women end up with abusive men that they are fully dependent upon, and it takes just about everything for them to get out of those situations. And it's all yeah. I mean, you and I hear stories like that every single day, comments on our videos or our DMs every day. And yep. it's heartbreaking because you and I, even though we survived, like we escaped the yep. fundamentalist evangelical movement and there is stuff we're going to be untangling for the rest of our lives. And I understand Absolutely. that we are lucky. We Somehow, by the higher powers that be, we landed the jackpot of humans to marry. I married to yep. this incredible human that is selfless and kind and just an incredible person. And I'm thankful because he was not raised in fundamentalist evangelical Christianity. Like he wasn't raised religious. That was a huge problem when we went to get married. Because people were like, are you sure he's going to be able to lead? Because he wasn't raised that way. He was like a new yeah. Christian. But I want to go and talk about, I want to shift things a little bit because we okay. wanted to talk about purity culture, but then we also wanted to talk about one of the other things that's really important for you to talk about. So I wanted to honor was discipline. How dare to discipline and how the strong-willed child, how that impacted the way that your parents raised you, how they interpreted it. And again, these are, I know it's stated at the bottom of the show notes, but everything that we say are people's own personal experiences. And yeah, this is your own personal so testimony we, experience. Just like you, we grew up with the rule of James Dobson in our apps. Dare to Discipline was a book that my parents followed by, and I ended up following it as well when I had my own children. and. My parents, my mother was the most loving and caring person you would ever meet. But like I said earlier, she was a victim of abuse at my father's hand as well. So she would make excuses for my dad, cover for my dad. And my dad was an abusive person. He spanked me. 
I mean, he spanked me ruthlessly to the point where I can remember one time in particular, held in my hands on the bed, he whacked me real good and I was crying and screaming and it was so painful. And I'd put my hands back behind me on my butt cheek and my dad cracked my hands the second time. And if he squirmed it all and he missed, you got hit where you got hit. I mean, that was it. There was no, you can't question your parents. You can't say no to your parents. And that not being able to say no to your parents actually stuck with me for a long time. It wasn't until, again, I was about 36 years old. And it's about the same time I left the church. It was the first time I could ever told my father no that I could ever remember as an adult. I had four kids, a husband, and I can remember that day to this day. Why? Because we never told our parents no. And I remember telling my dad no. Because he wanted me to be involved in some type of ministry thing, and I could not do it. And I remember telling him no, and he was so guilty afterward because I told him no. But even though I endured all of that stuff, there was a lot of memories that I don't, a lot of chunks that were left out of my childhood. My father physically abused my brother. And to the point where my brother left our house when he was a teenager because he was being abused by my dad so much, they would just get into fight. And my dad could not handle his temper. My brother could not handle his. And they would physically harm one another. And that was my household growing up. And my dad is a pastor. He was a pastor and beating the crap out of his own son. And then he was verbally abusing me. He was mentally and emotionally abusing my mother. The whole dynamic was a nightmare. And then later on, I had my own children. But again, I had my daughter when I was 20 years old. So I was a baby having baby. And I carried on that same tradition of spanking my kid because that was the normal for us. That's what we thought was right. And I honestly could not remember everything that I had endured. That spanking story I just told, I could not remember that because it was one of the chunks of my childhood that had been completely lost because of the trauma I had endured. And it wasn't until I had gotten older and actually admitted to myself that I had carried on that same abuse with my own children, that the memories of the abuse I had endured at the hand of my father started flooding back. It was like mm-hmm. the floodgate got opened up. And since then, I had to apologize to my own children for spanking them because not only did I spank them, but I was taught how to. My cousin and I took parenting classes to learn how to be good Christian parents. And it was in these parenting classes that they taught our step-by-step instruction on how to spank your children the proper way. This is what we were instructed to do. And we believed everybody because these were the people that were teaching us the right things, the right way to live, the way to be good, godly Christian parent. So, of course, we did those things. And again, we carried on that same abuse with our own children. And it makes me sick when I think about it. But again, it was considered normal. Gentle parenting, what's that? They mocked that stuff. But at the same time, we had parents we couldn't communicate with. They would shut down when we were emotional or they would beat us for it. That was what we were raised in. We had no voice. We had no autonomy. We were at our parents' beck and call, and there was nothing we could say or do about it unless we wanted a weapon. Yeah, I was just writing down 
a memory of my mom saying, because we discipline, it shows that we love you. Your friend's parents, it's obvious they don't love them because they don't discipline like we do. They don't discipline like good Christian homes do. And it made my mom seethe with anger that I had a better relationship with my friend's moms than with her because my friend's moms were always available to listen to my problems, to to hear me out. And she's she would always say, I want to make sure that you understand that is not a parent. That is somebody dysfunctional. That is somebody who doesn't have the love of Jesus, who doesn't understand parental authority. I love you. That person doesn't love you. And that person doesn't know how to be a good mom. Wow. I heard the same thing, though. I heard the same thing. Yep. We thank you because we love you. Yes. This is all because we love you. But then it's that when you associate love with abuse, when you get older in life, if you don't get abused when you get love, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem normal. Because you're so freaking traumatized to be used to getting abused by the people that love you. It's stupid. It's the craziest thing. Like, when I look back on all of this stuff that we were taught, it's like, how did our parents believe this stuff? But again, my dad was not nearly as abusive as his mother before him. And that's the thing. I look at that. Yeah, my dad was abusive, but he wasn't as abusive as his mother. And I wasn't as, as abusive as my parents were. And I pray to God that my kids aren't abusive at all. But I can't guarantee that one of them might not end up spanking their kids. Why? Because I taught them that was the right thing to do. And that's the messed up thing. And now they're adults. I can't make decisions for them. All I can tell them is this isn't the right thing to do and hope that they don't do it. But at the same time, I don't know. I don't know the outcome. And I pray to God that doesn't happen. I really do. Because I don't want that to continue. I don't want that cycle to get carried down to another generation. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I had a conversation with my older two. And I said, if there's ever a time where you remember something, like something comes back, and it was something that I said or I did that hurt you, I want you to know that you can come and talk to me about it and you can tell me about it and I will absolutely apologize because yes. how you perceive it, even if I think well, that's not what happened, it doesn't matter because Impact you see it. overt and tanks. Impact yeah. over and tanks. Because you see it the way that a child, the appropriate way a child would rationalize a situation, that is how you see it. And that child exist inside of you and that child needs an apology exactly and exactly and my parents would have never i i told this story on my tiktok several years ago or not several years ago several months ago but i caught my father masturbating as a child and it happened twice and he was doing in the living room in the middle of the night watching something gross on tv of course but i was the one who got guilted and shamed for catching him in his thing I was the one to make feel bad for what it is that he had done. My parents never, my dad would never take accountability for anything, which is why we don't have a relationship now, because he will not take accountability for his abusive behaviors, and he still engages in them. And I could sit him down and talk to him just like I am you right now. 
he's not going to change. It is who he is. And I can't do anything about that. But when we were raised, our voices did not matter at all. It did not matter what we had to say. Now, my mom was different. She cared. She was so caring, so compassionate. She was literally the out of the mold Christian because she just loved everybody. She's the reason why I have the heart for people that I do. But at the same time, she had her own struggles. So she could only handle so much, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, so absolutely. Still, she wasn't emotionally healthy enough to deal with everything that we had coming at her. That's her first. But she did her best. She really did. It's just, it's so messed up. We weren't even treated like we were human because we weren't. We were so, it's just like an object, just the thing that our parents could control and make you, we had to do anything. My dad, he had his own church. I remember just being forced to do manual labor on a regular basis. And I'm not talking like little stuff, like cleaning the kitchen. I'm talking like we're hollering and stacking wood. We're mowing the grass. I mean, like all kinds of stuff. And it wasn't like, oh, you're going to get an allowance. No, you just freaking did it or you got your bum. There yeah. was no question. And I didn't have a problem with being raised that way. It's just that we were not seen as equal to the adults. We would have never been. Our voices really did not matter at all. Only the adults did. Adults would hush us, tell us to shut up, quit talking. My grandmother did that to me. You just need to stop acting, Heather. She would say that to me. I had ADHD, but they didn't even know it. My parents didn't even know I had ADHD as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And I got crumbled. I got humble all the time. Why? Because I have freaking ADHD. But they had no idea. It's, just, it's crazy. Yeah. It's wild. But what Dobson did was he broke down. Now, I will say this to his credit, that when Dare to Discipline and The Strong-Willed Child came out, there was not a lot of understanding around ADHD. At that point, it was like a, it was, it was a brand new thing. So I will give that to his credit that when he wrote about it, there was little understanding, but it stops there because the little understanding that he had, he took those things, he demonized them and he stigmatized them, equated neurodivergency to mental illness or I think in one aspect, it was like mental retardation was like, you have a broken child. Essentially, that's what they, so what happened with that? And my parents fall into this category. What happened with that was I have a sibling who is very much on the spectrum. And because Dobson made it look like it was the parents fault and you're a bad parent and it vilifies the child, it says all these horrible things. My parents refused to get intervention for my sibling. And because of that, I mean, there's a whole, there's a lot of repercussions from that. But then when it came to myself or my brother, what would happen is all of those behaviors of unable to pay attention, creative thinking, solving problems, but because by the way that creative uh, problem solving manifests itself in children, is usually a mess, right? Because they're yeah. trying to solve a problem, but they don't have the executive function skills as an adult. And so trying to solve a problem is 
not the way that an adult would go about it. So it's usually I'm trying to clean something. I'm trying to be creative to clean it. And then I created a bigger mess. And that's the best way that I can describe what creative building looks like in the in the vicinity of a child, in the developmental stages of a child with their reasoning, critical thinking and logic reasoning, which we weren't allowed to have. But Dobson vilified this. He stigmatized it. And so anytime those behaviors did manifest themselves, it was something that needed to be exercised out of somebody. Like it was done long. Yeah. Yes, you were possessed. It was the same way of like mental illness, all those things. You were possessed. You were being affected by a demon of some kind and you need to be prayed for to get that out of you. Mm -hmm. And I can even remember like my brother, when he had his first child, his son ended up having to go on ADD medication. And I remember my dad saying, that boy doesn't need medicine. He just needs some prayer to go play outside. Yeah. That was his, because it was so demonized. You don't put your kids on that stuff because there's something wrong with them. And they're, I I don't understand the reasoning, but because like the reasoning that they have is everything that is not good for you. Don't take antidepressants if you're depressed. You just need to pray. But in our reality, that can cost somebody their life. And I've had that said to me. I had that said to me by the pastor's wife. You just need to quit taking those antidepressants, honey. And you know what I did? I did. I quit taking off. And about a month later, I had to go back on them because I almost had to get locked up in the mental hospital because I almost unalived myself. I look at these things very seriously. They just, they demonize everything. But they do. demonize it to the point where they demonize their own people while they're doing it. Yeah. Instead of being this piece of sanctuary and help, yeah, they push them away and they cause people to kill themselves. I've talked to a few people that have said they knew that they were having suicidal ideation and they knew that the best thing for them was to go get help. But they were so terrified that they would lose their salvation in the process because yeah. they were told that all they needed was prayer and Jesus. Jesus isn't a replacement for modern medicine and common sense, for God's sakes. I swear to God, people, they say that they believe in Jesus, but they don't know how to critically think. They don't know how to do anything other than what their pastor tells them is acceptable. And it's absolutely ridiculous because you have people attributing things to Jesus that Jesus wouldn't even say up on. I mean, ridiculous. Modern medicine is there. We should take advantage of that. But the church demonizes these things so much that they harm so many people in the process. Yeah. Because they do. They discourage people from getting help, from reaching out, from telling people. I've been the person in the church that has been brave enough to reach out and tell people. And you know what? I got demonized because of it. I got ostracized because of it. I got books thrown in my face about, oh, battlefield of the mind. Well, you know what, Joyce Meyer, you can go at yourself because that didn't help me at all. That book did not help my brain. All it did is make me worse. Why? Because I read the whole book and I was still at dark and it didn't work. And praying all the prayers, you can pray all the prayers over and over again. But you know what? If there's a chemical imbalance in your brain, a prayer ain't going to fix it. Like Battlefield of the Mind. Battlefield of the Mind is a book that teaches Christians how to gaslight themselves out of mental illness, which you can't do. You cannot gaslight yourself out of mental illness. You can't. You just can't. And 
I hate to break it to you, but there's no amount of praying and obsessing over whether or not you are in the will of God that will give you a perfect life. There is no formula because if there was a formula to perfection, to heaven on earth, girl, we would be living it right now. Exactly. I just really feel so many things, again, that we were taught and used against us. And the whole battlefield of the mind thing, it is just one of the most horrible things you can do is teach people that instead of going and getting professional help to just pray about their situation. We can't just sit here and say a prayer and not go to the doctor if we're feeling sick. But this, that type of mindset, though, gets people in dangerous situation. I read a story a couple of years ago about some parents that were actually in really big trouble because of that, because their kid was really sick in the hospital. And they were refusing treatment because they were praying that God was going to heal their child. Prayer is not a substitute for modern medicine. It's not a substitute for those things. And when we tell people to go pray about something that they need professional help on, Whatever results of that statement, just telling them to pray, that is on our hands. There are Christians that have a lot of blood on their hands for things that they have said, things that they have done, things that they have upheld, and they don't care. <laughs> and it's, it's just frustrating. It's overwhelming sometimes, angry, because these are wounded, hurting people, people that are in desperate situation. And then instead of offering them hope, you're giving them hopelessness instead. Yeah, I agree with that. So we've talked a, a lot about purity culture and corporal punishment. However, I would like to talk about today, how does this impact you? And then how are you using that impact to bring awareness, to help people, to end the cycle, whether it's in your community or it's broader in the world. So the way it's impacting me today is, like you said, just deconstructing this harmful thing. It is a daily process. And I believe that just like you said, I'll be deconstructing for the rest of my life. Whenever we learn new and useful information, we get rid of the old and outdated stuff that isn't serving us anymore. Right now, I am really focusing on my healing because I have been eight years out of the church, but healing has been a long process for me because there's just been so much to unpack. I have incurred a heck of a lot of use at the hands of the church. That has been my main focus. So moving forward, and I share on social media all the time, but moving forward, I am using my voice to help elevate the voices of others, marginalized communities, to call out these false doctrines, I'm still a minister, but I don't preach anymore. I just marry queer people now. Moving forward, I am being a voice online in my community, in my neighborhood, everywhere I'm at. And my motto is that I'm living loudly in love. That is my mission. That is my call to action, so to speak, for everybody. With every thought, there are two different ways you can go with your response. It's either going to be affected by fear or by love. And we have a choice every time when we're faced with a situation, are we going to let the fear to drive us or the love to drive us? And it's my mission to let love drive me for the rest of my life. Because if it isn't love, then it's not worth holding on to. Because love changes lives. 
And yeah. that's my mission is to just spread light, love, hope, and healing everywhere I go. That's beautiful. Okay. This is what I, I call it the lightning round, but it's not really a lightning round because it's not like I'm going to ask you a million questions. What is your favorite book? The Night Circus is actually my favorite book. And I, what's terrible is I can't remember the name of the author off the top of my head right now, but I love that book. I just, it's, it's a fantasy book, but it's just such a cool book the way it's written. And I just really get into the story of it and all of the mystery and wonder. That's my favorite books. What's your favorite movie? I'm going to be cheesy here. Don't hate me, y'all, but it's The Notebook, okay? Because I'm a whole bunch of romantics. And I love like I was going to die. We've made it through everything. So I hope that we get to die like that someday. That means the coolest. Favorite song? Oh, God, a favorite song? I don't really think I have one. And that's the honest to goodness truth. I really don't. I really don't. That's your favorite. What's your favorite right now? What is my favorite right now? It would be Free Me. It's my favorite song right now. Free Me. And and it's such a good song. Because I'm freer than I ever been. I just love love that. What's your hobby? What do you do to unwind? Well, TikTok is one of my really huge hobbies, but I really love to crochet. That's one of my big hobbies is just making stuff with yarn. But I'm an ADHD crafter, so I don't have just one. I collect hobbies. Every time I try to crochet, it's like my, the way that my brain works when it sees loops and all of these things, it's we're going to shut down and we're going to marinate that for a little bit. And sometimes that can be overnight and other times that can be years. And then I'll see it again. I'm like, oh, that's what was going on in the background. But it's hard for me. So I'm wondering if I were to pick up crocheting again, if maybe I'd figure it out. But I still don't know. So I have a bag of yarn that looked interesting. And I now need to find my knitting needles because it's been a while. Well, Mm -hmm. I want to say thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having Um, me. I really appreciate this so much. No, it's an honor to be asked. It really is. It's, I was so excited about being on your podcast, like beyond excited. But for me, this is full circle. Everything, like, I'll be honest with you. I was in ministry for 36 years, but I've never had things happen for me like they are happening now that I'm doing this work. And I look back on all that time and it's so much time I wasted because I could have been helping people. I could have been. Like, I have seen the most amazing thing since doing this work, that there isn't anything in the world that could convince me that I'm on the wrong path or doing the wrong thing. Because when you see people just coming into who they are and just being loved for who they are, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. And it's the most beautiful thing to be a part of, too. So, uh, anyway, again, thank you for all the things that (laughs) you are doing. It's incredible. I'm honored that you are in my circle of friends. Me too. And I actually told my husband the other night, I, I was like, I was talking to her for an hour on the phone and it didn't feel like it. I was like, it is incredible to be with like-minded people and not struggle to find something to yeah. say. But, well, I feel the same way. Thank you so much. I love you a whole big bunch. You have a great day. If you need anything, just power at me. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure that you are kind to yourself and to others. If you are interested in supporting this show, please click the link at the bottom to my Patreon. 
These shows take a lot of time and resources, and any support is appreciated. If you are interested in being a guest, please email the show at focusonyourownfamilypodcast at gmail.com. Inside of the show notes, you will find the links to mine and the guests' socials. Please give us a follow. We look forward to talking with you and connecting with you.